Welcome to the Northern Lights Show. My name is Maple. And I'm Flapjack. Great. Well, we have a great show, Flapjack. What do we have today? Indeed, we do. So we're going to obviously cover the uh, post-election reactions and the outcome. Uh, There's a lot to talk about in terms of the Green Party, the Conservatives, and the Liberals who did, in fact, win uh, going forward into the future. Then Trudeau has a misstep right out of the gate in his new mandate. Uh, Also, the federal government is going to be bringing down the hammer on a vaccine mandate and a travel vaccine mandate. The Western provinces are having a bit of a pandemic by themselves, and we're going to get an update on that. Uh, We've had some developments in the Canada-China relations front, uh, so that's exciting to talk about. And then you've got something interesting on your mind uh, regarding the war on drugs. I've got something uh, on my mind myself regarding vaccine patents, and then we're going to talk about some global news stories that are not getting the coverage they deserve. Okay, beautiful. Well, let's uh, go back to the federal election. Now, there's um, a lot of fallout, um, a lot to be discussed here. Um, Recently, Anime Paul, uh, leader of the Green Party, has officially resigned September 27th. Um, She said that this was the worst period in my life. And Paul, being the first black and Jewish woman to lead a major federal party, said that she was subjected to racism and sexism by the party members. Still, Anime Paul is remaining in control of its communications of the party. Uh, What do you have to say about this, Flapjack? Honestly, yeah, I I was not surprised that she would be uh, stepping down after failing to secure her own seat and, in fact, coming in fourth in her district. Uh, So... Not, no surprise there. And uh, we did hear um, this sort of sentiment being echoed in the debates. Uh, she was uh, very uh, outspoken about the situation and how women in politics are, are dealt with, as well as uh, being a, a woman of color. I didn't even realize that about uh, um, a Jewish person not having um, been the leader of a major party. Uh, so that actually surprises me, but uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, you learn something new every day. This one, I, I do think that she probably did receive quite a bit of of hate. There, there is something strange in the Green Party in that they do seem to have people from all walks of life, similar to the anti-vaxxer rallies, where you got people on the right and the left coming out, and that seems to be the case for the Green Party, which is always interesting to me. And so I'm not surprised that she was um, getting some um, not very kind uh, words uh, in her direction. Uh, and I, it's appalling. I hate it. And uh, it's unfortunate that that's what happens to your own leader. Um, if, if you are a Green voter and you're a member of the Green Party and you're going to direct that kind of comments towards your own leader, I, I, I can't even imagine what the heck's going on in, in that kind of mind. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say whether or not the infighting has hurt the Green Party, but it's definitely not a good look for them. I just want to go over a quote from Elizabeth May. Now, she has stated that she's not going to be the interim Green Party leader, but I just want to go over this quote uh, briefly. We have a lot of soul searching to do, but the current situation of a leader who has resigned but then hasn't resigned is unattainable. 
Um, I think she's mainly referring to uh, Anime Paul still being in control of um, the communications aspect of the party. But, I mean, she has officially resigned as the party leader, so... Yeah, I, I think uh, the Green Party really needs to take um, a deep look at themselves and uh, see what's uh, next for the future. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that they really didn't move the needle too much and that they are still struggling to secure seats for their prominent members uh, and the fact that, yeah, she did resign, yet is still sort of the interim leader, uh, you know, that... They, they really do need to kind of sort through some of these growing pains uh, before they really come out swinging again. Uh, and, you know, this criticism is thrown towards the NDP as well in that they seem to be sort of treading water ever since Jack Layton. Uh, they really haven't seen that kind of huge run. And uh, it's a similar criticism criticism directed their way. But in here, it's, it's clear that they're still not even coming close to winning seats. They're not growing their voter base, and so something has got to change. Uh, yeah, like they, they cannot continue to run um, a political party in this way. No, they cannot. Let's direct our attention to the progressive conservatives. Now, I thought they ran a great campaign with all things considering, moving more to a centrist uh, right um, standpoint on the political spectrum. Uh, I mean, with the fallout of the federal election, there was going to be talks no matter what, of what to do with Aaron O'Toole, whether, her no whether or not his leadership will be in question. Uh, what do you have to say about that, Flapjack? Yeah, so honestly, I did not, uh, I did not expect it to come uh, this quickly. Now, I will say uh, I understand what they're saying and how, and how it could be warranted after all. They actually lost two seats despite, like you like you pointed out, the move towards the center. They moved a left just a little bit. They brought in a lot of initiatives that we've seen from other parties. And so I, I actually thought that they were going to do a little bit better. They ended up doing a tiny bit worse. And so ultimately the, the MPs of the conservative party decided that they want to have the option to choose a new leader before the next election. And, you know, it's got to be frustrating for O'Toole. I mean, he, he's just he's just become the leader of this party. He had his first um, election, which was a snap election. And what was supposed to be a complete blowout and have the liberals gain a majority, at one point it looked like the conservatives could actually upset that and win their own minority at least. The fact that it nothing really changed... Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but I think that they were able to hold on and not lose their, not lose the minority, uh, or at least not give away the majority to the liberals, and they didn't lose to the NDP anywhere. Uh, so honestly, I'm kind of shocked that that's the direction that the conservatives went in, but I can understand why they're doing it because they expected a much better turnout, especially with the early polling. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I believe the only chance for the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada to attain a federal government is by staying at the center. So I thought it was wise of the Conservatives to acknowledge that the Liberal Party of Canada has moved to the center left and to counter that by moving to the center right. 
So I do see future future elections between both parties taking place and battling each other out in the center. What do you think? Yeah, I I honestly, like I said before, I thought that they were going to do much better. I didn't think that they were going to win. I thought that they were going to at least gain some seats and not lose two. Uh, with that being said, though, I do think that their only way forward is to stay this course and, and potentially come at it even more aggressively. Because remember, a big criticism towards the party, as we talked about early in this show, uh, not in this particular show, but a later sh- uh, earlier show, was that the conservatives have a lot of members that are not on board with this move. You still have a lot of them voting for um, gay conversion therapy mm-hmm. as well as uh, voting um, against abortion rights. So there's a lot of people and members of, of parliament still in that party that are still in the past from that party. And uh, they ultimately have to bring those people on board or or get new people uh, in there because that's really going to hurt them. I think ultimately that's what's hurting them now because they did move quite a bit uh, towards the center. And I I was optimistic about that i was i was appreciative of that because we do need all parties to be on board with what are not even debatable topics anymore because the the science is 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 in we know the answers to a lot of these these questions and now it's how do we best deal with the situation and we need all parties all hands on deck to actually understand the situation and so it's good to see the conservatives finally get on board with climate change as well as O'Toole being um, outspoken and being uh, pro-choice as well as um, in in favor of rights for LGBTQ people. So the fact that he is part of that is great, but he needs his entire party to back him on that. And that's their only way forward, I believe. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they can't just eat their own, even though that is... uh... It's uh, it's their standard instinct, I guess you could say, with what uh, happened with Sheer. But yes, the rejection of these socially conservative ideas, abortion, anything related to LGBT rights, they need to put those aside and focus on the affordability and reducing the cost of living for ordinary Canadians. And that's what I thought the 44th federal election was about. Uh, reducing the cost of living, um, affordable housing, etc. So it's just best to just shove those, in my opinion, shitty, divisive ideas aside and focus on actually helping Canadians and not just, you know, evangelicals or like some like loony Christian groups or what have you. That's right. And just to, to, to kind of wrap up that this segment, I think he did, I think O'Toole did a great job of staying away from those issues because he knew full well his party was going to hold him back. He was His party was going to hold the party back because he was unable to fully endorse those with the entire backing of his own party. Uh, we see the same thing with, with vaccinations, right? Like his party needs to be 100% on board with his message about how they're going to handle COVID. You cannot have random MPs being anti-vaxxer or random M- MPs, um, you know, being against a particular uh, race or, or gay people or anything like that, it, it completely derails the message of what you're pointing out is focus on helping Canadians. 
I think O'Toole did a great job of staying on point and on message there, but there's all this background noise of the party that is that is really going to hold them up in a lot of key areas that they need votes in. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I guess we'll jump over to the winning party um, and talk about how the liberals are going to forge ahead with the exact same minority government that they did, uh, that they had going into this election, and what that means. What, what, are, your, what are your takeaways from, from the fact that the liberals didn't really gain anything and this whole election seems to have been a waste of everyone's time. Obviously, we're going to talk about low vo- voter turnout, but in terms of the liberals, uh, they have a lot of policies uh, that they are going to want to implement. But in a minority government, uh, how do you see that they forge ahead? Uh, they're going to have to have a strong coalition with the NDP and other political parties. Um, so I guess it is time for bipartisanship uh, with the Trudeau government. Um, I, I just think they need to move forward, uh, stay the course, and they just need to know that there's going to be a lot of eyes on them. Um, Canadians want accountability from this government. They definitely need more now than ever, considering that we're in a fourth wave. We'll, we are still battling it out during this pandemic. So there is going to be a lot of accountability on Trudeau's um, on tr- on Trudeau's part. Yeah, right on. I I uh, you know I also foresee potentially a and this is going to be strange to hear, but an NDP conservative coalition because I think uh, for sure the conservatives were very outspoken about wanting a, a government accountability to be a big topic of this election and. It, didn't really get there because Canadians had forgotten about the the liberal scandals uh, from just just a few years ago. So I think with the NDP and the Conservatives um, really pushing this accountability, but also uh, pushing some of these uh, legal loopholes that both the government and and personal and private um, corporations are able to utilize. I think we might see some some play there. I know a lot of people were angry when. Uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, talked about working with the conservatives and how he is willing to listen to what they have to say and see how that fits in with an NDP goal. Uh, you know, honestly, at this point, we do need everyone to kind of you know, come together and see us through the end of this pandemic. And so I am all for all parties kind of coming together in, in any way that they can find some common ground to push this through to the finish line yeah and i was always a fan of that team canada approach that um that we had during the beginnings of the pandemic of course every everything fell apart because everything became political including the pandemic so if we could go, go back to that team canada approach all the while be weary and push the best legislation forward i think that is the best move for every single party in canada yeah, agreed. I th- I think you're right. I I uh, you know it's 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 one of those rare times where you have that uh, really like unity coming together. You really only see that when there is like a, a Olympic event or, or something of that nature where it's not too political and and you're just there having fun. 
and everyone is cheering on uh, for the Canadian athlete or something like that. That's really the only other time we see that that national unity where it doesn't matter what territory or province you're from, uh, you're all Canadian. And we saw that, like you said, early on in the pandemic, uh, it did start to kind of fall apart uh, in the middle there and towards the end. But I am hopeful we did see a lot of the uh, conservative premiers reach out, congratulate the liberals and say that they are willing to work with them. And honestly, they need it because there is there is trouble all over Canada right now. And so I think people just need to put aside those differences for a little while longer and get through this. Yeah, of course. Now, let's direct our attention to the voter turnout uh, this federal election. It has actually dropped, I I guess, for some people that's considered a no-brainer. But to me, I felt this election was one of the most important federal elections of Canada's history. So, uh, voter turnout, uh, the 44th uh, federal election was at 58.96%, compared to the 2019 election of 67%. What do you think has caused the sudden dip? Is it is COVID only to blame? Is there something else that um, we're missing here? Honestly, I'm not surprised by this. I, I, I do agree that this was a very important election. But with the way COVID impacted how we do elections, I am actually not surprised. I, I know there should have been and they were expecting more mail-ins and maybe... There could have been uh, a better system or, or more uh, awareness campaigns to express that Canada is ready to do mail-in ballots. I think it was kind of a combination of factors from the situation we saw in the United States with their most recent election uh, to the fact that here, while there was early voting, uh, quite a bit of it, um, there weren't very many voting stations that were used to. And there was a and and there was a lot of places that just outright would not let the government um, turn their their place into a, a voter uh, station. A lot of the schools, because of the pandemic and the fact that students cannot get the vaccine, they shut their doors to the government. University campuses closed their doors, and so what used to be a very easy process became a bit of a challenge for Elections Canada. They ultimately didn't have enough places. Uh, I know here I tried to vote early initially and that was uh, a no-go those lines were massive and i i did not have the kind of time to stand in them uh in the middle of the day uh so i ultimately ended up doing the mail-in vote myself but i think just seeing that and 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 seeing you know some people are probably thinking it doesn't really matter it's going to be liberals again which they were right or it doesn't matter it's going to be conservative minority which essentially could be a liberal minority if you have a coalition between the NDP and liberals. So just, I think there was just a lot of um, weird circumstances combined with people's uh, expectations that this election was nothing like nothing was going to change, but I agree. This could have been a massive um, impact to Canada, depending on how the election turned out. However, with low voter turnout, we ended up going exactly as we were initially. And, you know, here we are having, spend all this money to have this election uh, nobody came out and uh, ultimately we're, we're basically where we were five six months from uh, ago and and you know not, nothing is is any different even though all these parties are talking about their wins and whatnot nothing's changed at all and we're going to move ahead as scheduled 
Yeah, I mean, I think some of it has to do with people not feeling comfortable to vote in person. And then there's others who felt that going through the mail, uh, mail-in voting process was maybe just too many steps there, too many red tapes. Oh, God, I don't want to go through with this. Can I just watch Netflix instead? So I think there was um, apathy, but also this feeling of not being safe at a polling station. Yeah, I you know, I I think the 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 big problem really was COVID. I that that is where where I I I'm coming down on. I, I think COVID really upset the the status here. We we have seen snap elections have a lot better uh, turnout, and ultimately, I think people are still concerned about COVID as well as all those other um, topics that are on people's minds and other situations that have come up, and so. Uh, you know, I wasn't expecting this low of a turnout, but I, I, I really, I'm not too surprised that people ultimately didn't show up. Um, one thing I will say though, is that, uh, the, the people working at the polling stations also had a very tough go of it. So what used to be a much short, and I, I think I've talked about this on a previous show, what used to be a much, a much shorter, uh, working hour, uh, or wor- working, I guess, four hours was your shift before. Uh, because of COVID and because of the protocols they had to put in place, those ended up being 12-hour shifts uh, for people with no help. So usually, you, uh, if if you remember previous elections, you'll go and you'll you, you walk up to the uh, a little table where there's two people sitting there. One person is taking uh, your ID or your voter registration or whatever, however you're um, pr- proving who you are, and the other person is finding your name on a list and checking it off. And and that two per, two person system is really quick and efficient. It then became a one person system with less stations, and I, I just think people, you know, I, I can't believe those people actually stayed and worked those shifts. Like good, good on them because uh, we needed them. But uh, you know, Elections Canada really should have done something different about how these uh, polling stations uh, were going to be handled. Yeah, I mean, I think because of the snap election, they just didn't have any, they didn't have enough time to make the necessary planning. Um, So I I think it's more of it being called during a pandemic and also it being sudden, which kind of led to lawn voter lines as well um, and closed uh, voting booths. Yep, that's right. Well, um, we did have a, a... A low turnout election. Trudeau won re-election, and the very first thing he did was go on holiday uh, during the reconciliation day. What an awful optics this is, right? Like this is just—I I can't. Be- this is like something that you would see on a comedy show, and yet here it is, and and the fact that. He decided to go on holiday on that particular day instead of being somewhere. You know, some people are going to say, hey, if he just shows up somewhere and it's just a photo op, maybe he was trying to, like, give some breathing room. But then don't be spotted on holiday somewhere. Like, maybe stay home or something. You know what I mean? Like, this is just this. There's no way out of this. And he had to apologize. 
Yes, exactly. And this is the first federal holiday to honor the thousands of indigenous children who were forcefully assimilated into the residential school system. So it is terrible optics for the prime minister. Uh, <laughs> I I don't know who uh, gave him the green light or if anyone gave him the green light, but um, or if I guess no one gave him pushback because it's just terrible optics. It does not make <laughs> himself look good. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't know what he was thinking, but um, maybe he just wasn't thinking. Yeah, I and honestly, as the article that I have uh, on the screen, um, if you're watching on YouTube, points out, it's not that he doesn't deserve time off. It's that this was the very first uh, sort of holiday because it's not it's not quite catching on just yet. Very first sort of reconciliation day that is a holiday. And you need people to take it seriously. You need people to be aware of it. And by going to some beach vacation in British Columbia, that is not the way to unite the country around this very important, honestly, uh, day. And the fact that there were a ton of gatherings of uh, different indigenous leaders, different uh, native uh, groups coming together, and he wasn't a part of any of them. And even nearby where he was staying, there were uh, large get-togethers uh, and and a day of healing. And, and he didn't show up to that. Now, maybe he wasn't invited and maybe he didn't want to be the center of attention. And I get all that. But just the fact that he is he is a few minutes away from a, 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 an event like that. And he's just sitting on a on a beachfront, you know sipping a margarita or whatever like come on this is this has got to be one of the silliest ideas that you can do when you when you first win re-election and uh yeah i i i you're right who greenlit this did he check with anyone this is just ridiculous and honestly this is actually one of the worst ones because this one is so stupid yes that that it's almost like there's no the other ones kind of make sense because there is a bit of that like backroom politics where he goes on vacation with private donors that kind of stuff uh not saying he should be doing that but you can at least see why he might think that that's okay or at least like that's maybe just par for the course this is just ridiculous this is literally just like here's a day that i've pushed forward with complete unanimous support september 30th and i'm gonna go on holiday that day it's just ridiculous and i, I nobody would would think that this is a smart move if he had if he had run it past anybody they would have said immediately, do not do that. You have to either stay home and say something or go to an event that you're welcomed at and say something. Um, one thing I thought of um, mm-hmm. right before we went uh, live is maybe he didn't want protests to show up at any of these events. But still, you cannot be seen on vacation just lounging about during this day. You you have to people have to think you're doing something like there's there's a part of the job where people need to think that you are taking it seriously and the the fact that we we see him not is what is so damning about this yeah i mean our expectations for the pm are so low we're not expecting much i mean he is kind of a selfie politician social media politician just go to an event shake some hands, 
take some selfies. No one's asking that much. And, you know, for context, we've recently found hundreds of unmarked graves near residential schools. I mean, this is genocide. It is ethnic cleansing. I'm not being overly dramatic when I say that. This is ethnic cleansing. And to just be on vacation, it's silly. Now, I do want to say that the Canadian leader spent some time on the phone speaking with residential school survivors um, September 30th on the Day of Truth and Re Reconciliation. But it, it, it's still not good enough, but we weren't expecting much to begin with. No, I, I agree. And, and uh, just before we, we uh, finish up here, I just want to read a, a couple quotes here. Um, we have the Native, uh, the Native Women's Association of Canada when uh, talking about the fact that Trudeau said the most important relationship to him and his government is that with the Indigenous peoples. The Native Women's Association of Canada says that those words ring incredibly hollow when Mr. Trudeau could not take the time that his own government set aside to reflect upon the tragedy of the Indian residential schools and instead choose to flit off to Tofino for a holiday. Uh, another another uh, prominent member of the uh, the Grand Chief, uh, Stuart Phillips, uh, president of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, said that this was a slap in the face to residential school survivors. These are harsh words, and they're, they're earned, because... It is. Like you said, you're not being uh, hyperbolic. It was a genocide. This day is supposed to mark and respect and and try to heal that fact about Canada. And it is the first ever day that he, his government, literally just passed. And this is his first time doing something on that day. And he goes on vacation. It is completely ridiculous. And I honestly, this... <laughs> This it's kind of silly because in a way this is so stupid that no one would think that we would even have to talk about this because now we have to get upset about something that is that should have been such a trivial thing like you said he could have gone shaken some hands taken some photo ops he loves doing that stuff he would have had a blast but instead this is what happens it's ridiculous and honestly we we were mad about this and it seems funny to some people but like this is this is our prime minister and we look like idiots yes definitely well speaking of idiots no i'm just kidding um the federal government has mandated that all federal employees must be vaccinated by the end of this month october um and also the same with public servants what do we have to say about this announcement flapjack uh, we knew this was coming. Uh, I, I, you know, it wasn't clear when, and now we are starting to get some times rolled out. So yes, the the federal government employees must be vaccinated by the end of October, and then I believe it is the uh, any any airline travelers must be vaccinated by the end of November. I believe. Uh, so we knew that was coming. Uh, we didn't know in what form uh, because. We still don't have a clear-cut uh, vaccine passport, uh, which we're not talking about in this segment, but that is the ideal way to show this if, if that's going to be the government's mandate. Uh, so, yeah, like th this is not uh, unexpected. They did talk about this. I think all, gov all 
uh, federal governments were talking about something along these lines. Uh, I, you know, the only problem is, are the vaccine passports even going to work with each other? So if you fly somewhere and you try to fly back or whatever, how, how is that going to work? I, we really still don't know how how that all is going to come together. Um, but I, I think, I don't, you know, I'm not sure that this is the right way to do it. I know some people are going to lose their jobs over this, and I think they should be vaccinated. But uh, I, I think the U.S. maybe got the balance just right in the way that Biden handled it in terms of saying that you, you need to either be vaccinated or be checked so many times a week or maybe every day. Once a week. Something. Yeah, his is once a week, but I'm thinking maybe we can make it every other day or every day, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's a better way forward. Uh, so, I, yeah, I'm not I'm not super keen on this. Uh, I, I do like the idea. I mean, I, I'm, I'm shocked that uh, they actually were, were coming this hard on the uh, airline travel. I thought they would leave it up to the airlines, and obviously the airlines want to uh, keep everyone safe you would think otherwise they might get some sort of lawsuits or something and they're not in any position to deal with lawsuits right now so you would think that the airlines would implement this themselves uh but the the federal government is making them do it uh anyway so that is also maybe a bit much what what are your takes on that maple well, there are medical exemptions as well as religious exemptions. I don't know how one could even get a religious exemption, but uh, to each their own. I, I think it's the right move to keep people safe um, in this strange time. The question is, for how long? And then, of course, as you were um, bringing up there, there's logistical challenges and questions so I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. I don't see this as complete tyranny or authoritarianism. Um, I, I, I do believe that this is the government's way of keeping people safe during a pandemic. But we'll just wait and see. Um, and we'll keep all our viewers um, up to date on any developments. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, there are still questions, not, not even just in terms of what we, we've talked about. But um, what about people from other countries uh, are are how can we guarantee that those people coming in are going to be vaccinated? Uh, you know that there, there are there are a lot of logistics questions within Canada, but also when you talk about the global airline travel community, if you will, uh, how do you? There's no way to mandate all of those airlines do it uh, because they don't all operate out of Canada. They sometimes they just land here, so. I am kind of confused about how they do the air travel uh, mandate. The, the federal employees one, you can kind of see that as like them trying to lead the charge, even though I think they could have maybe done it a little bit differently. But uh, yeah, I don't think it's complete tyranny, like everyone run for the hills. But, uh, uh, you know, they're definitely going to get some criticism. And I, I do wonder how they actually plan on, on implementing it, especially since... Uh, presumably when they say all federal employees that's going to be across Canada and so each federal employee is going to have their own provincial vaccine passport or vaccine authorization papers or however they're going to present them so it's going to be very strange to see how this all comes together and this is uh, this is par for the course when it comes to the federal government uh, in terms of how their agencies talk to each other so uh, they've got a lot on their plate um, right now yeah, of course. 
I'm thinking that we maybe take things to the western provinces and regions of Canada. So, of course, Alberta is in a state of crisis, uh, record COVID cases, record ICUs. Uh, Jason Kenney's um, leadership is uh, in question. Uh, what do we have to say about this, Flapjack? Yeah, I mean, we, we've seen the signs, the writing's been on the walls for weeks, if not months, that the this pandemic is becoming a pandemic of the unvaccinated, and the least vaccinated provinces, being the prairie provinces, were obviously going to uh, face a huge brunt of uh, COVID upticks when the Delta variant really ramped up. And uh, that's actually not just a Western problem anymore. All of that is the cause, you could say. We're now seeing, because of the the, um, the Atlantic provinces being so good, people have actually been going out there uh, on, on holidays because, you know, you can't really go anywhere else in the world right now. Uh, and that has, of course, upticked them uh, into pretty dangerous territories because they have such uh, lower population numbers and so yeah like the the unvaccinated that have uh that have really uh kind of messed up the healthcare systems in the prairies are now causing it to spiral out of control all over the place uh we see it in new brunswick uh and in and in newfoundland that uh people there are starting to get seriously ill and the thing is that while those provinces are uh, vaccinate a lot more you're also going to see just how odds work that some people who are vaccinated may may die and that will actually it, like that'll really mess with the data just because of the population density there and how how strange the population is in the atlantic provinces to cities and other areas of the world so uh, I, i'm worried to hear any of those results then all of a sudden start hearing anti-vaxxers to cry the vaccines even more because all of a sudden the data uh, shifts and it and the vaccines seem less safe because they've they've essentially infected these other provinces. Uh, but we know that the prairies are reaching out. The federal government is trying to help them. Ontario and other uh, Atlantic provinces are trying to send people over there to help them because they have really uh, kind of not handled this well at all. And as you pointed out. Uh, their premier is on the chopping block, and rightfully so. He was unable to convince his constituents and his uh, province that this is what you need to do to stay safe. I'm not saying he had to force everyone, but they, they really didn't do a great job at uh, educating people and, and convincing them because ultimately that those provinces, they were just not getting vaccinated. And... Uh, and here we are all over again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was criticized for just leaving everything open um, in Alberta, um, especially during the Calgary Stampede. Uh, I just want to go over some statistics. So ICU capacity is at 81%, including additional surge beds without additional spaces, provisional uh, provisional uh, ICU uh emissions would be at 175% of capacity. So things are kind of looking a little bit dim for Alberta. We'll see how everything kind of fares. Yeah, and and on top of that, we have a 
I mean, this is a Canadian show, so obviously we're going to talk about hockey. And the Edmonton Oilers, the one of the uh, one of Alberta's hockey teams, the national national hockey teams, uh, has a player on it that uh, had COVID, and this is interesting, had COVID, but now no longer has COVID, but now is sick and potentially will lose their hockey career over this because they are so ill. Uh, now I, I don't know if this was on on your radar, uh, Maple, but uh, me being a a big hockey fan. Uh, I already kind of knew this story was coming because earlier on when the NHL was trying to play through a COVID lockdown season, they had a lot of these anti-vaxxers. Well, not a lot. There's about 5% of the NHL players that are adamant anti-vaxxers tweeting on social media, all this disinformation, all this nonsense that if, if you go back and look at some of this guy's tweets, this is Josh Archibald for Edmonton Oilers. Uh, a lot of the links he posts no longer work because it's mm-hmm. just some crazy site. Uh, but he was tweeting all sorts of COVID denial information. And here's the crazy thing. Um, let me just try to try to put this out there. So the way it was going to work, because they're not, there is no vaccine mandate in the NHL. However, you do have to be checked daily. And if you are unvaccinated, when you travel between U.S. and Canada... You will have to quarantine for 14 days. Now, his coach and his manager, who pay him, tried to convince him to get the the vaccine, saying to him, look, if you do not get the vaccine, every time we come home to play a home game, you will have to quarantine. And that means you're not going to be able to play any home games. We're not going to pay you for those home games. You're not going to be able to come to practice for those days. So we're going to dock pay for that too. So he was literally willing to give up half of his salary. And now he makes 1.5 million a year. So, you know, he, he's going to be okay, but he, he was willing to give that up because he was so adamant about this being a hoax. And that's just insane to me because his entire team, his entire management staff are trying to convince him and say, look, we want you to be on this team. You need to get vaccinated. Otherwise we can't play you legally like and he was still adamant about not going through with it anyway he gets covid and then he gets diagnosed with myocarditis now this is something that happens to some people after they get covid and so he is he is struggling to breathe and that he cannot participate in in the national hockey league game right now because he can't breathe properly and you need to be able to actually breathe when you're working out and so really he yeah he he potentially loses his career over this if he never gets better and that to me is just i you know i i understand some of these people are are anti-vax and and they don't have a ton of repercussions uh from being so uh they may lose their jobs obviously we talked about the federal mandate they may get scorned at work or scorned by their uh family members or neighbors or what have you but this guy was willing to He's literally willing to give up an NHL career. And and let me tell you, NHL players, they love their job. They've worked their entire life to get there. It is, you know, a fraction of a percent of hockey players get to actually play in the NHL. And this guy was willing to risk it all because he thought COVID was fake. To me, that's dedication. He clearly thinks it's fake. He's not. He is not just out there trying to make money off of some COVID anti-vax stuff. He actually believed it. And that's shocking to me. I, I really didn't know how many were with this hardcore, if I can use that term, to, 
who actually believed it that much. Yeah, of course. And I mean, he's 28 years old. I mean, he's pretty much in the prime of his life, of his, of his athletic uh, career. And just to let all that go down the drain, his career, his health, just for his stupid conspiracy uh, beliefs, it's just really telling. And I don't know if it's a mental health thing or, you know, kind of just like a mind parasite type thing. But it's definitely uh, infecting everyone. Yeah, and just the, the the fact that they are they are true believers. This is not just a a light conspiracy. Like they they are full on. This is true, and they are willing to risk it all. Uh, uh that kind of scares me a bit. Yeah, it does scare me. I mean, I think it's because I myself. I'm exactly the opposite. I'm not willing to die or lose anything for any of my political beliefs or any of um, you know these silly conspiratorial beliefs that I may have. So yeah, they are true believers, and um, they're not far and few in between. There's many of them, and um, we do wish him a speedy recovery. Um, I do wish him the best, uh, regardless um, of him spreading disinformation. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I honestly, I don't want him to lose his NHL career. I know how hard these guys work for it, and ha- and this is literally their dream. Since how many, how many people can say that they're living their dream from when they were like five or six years old? I like that's, you know, I really hope he gets back to it. Like you said, he's uh, he's right at the the peak of 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 his prime, um, and and after twenty eight uh, in the NHL, we start to see a bit of a decline in most players. So that like this is the la- his last potentially really good year until he starts to go in in the opposite direction. Edmonton is trying to get far in the playoffs. Uh, they've got Connor McDavid, obviously the big name in hockey, and so he was on a team that could have competed for a Stanley Cup, and he might now never play again. Uh, that's Honestly, that is shocking to me, and I just had to talk about it because I honestly did not realize how adamant these people were. I thought that when push came to shove, if they were to look, it's going to be, you know, your life's going to be an ish, like your daily life, not not your actual physical life, but just like your day-to-day life is going to be inconvenience. I thought a lot of these people are just going to, okay, I'm going to get the vaccine. It's not that big a deal. But this guy, this guy was uh, all in on this. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So let's move forward with China. We have a lot of developments coming out of China. Now, just to give uh, people uh, context here, in 2018, China accused Michael Spaver and Michael Korvig of espionage, denying uh, denying detaining them was in retaliation of Mrs. Min's arrest, which is a Huawei executive. She was uh, recently released and extradited back to China. What do you have to say about this, Flapjack? Yeah, so this this was interesting because everyone around the world, all countries, all people who who heard of the story knew what was happening. And that was that the two Michaels, two Canadians, were political prisoners and that their lives were being used to try to sway... Uh, United Nations and and in this case uh, in particular U.S. Uh, law, and uh, ultimately, it seems to have worked to some degree because 
as you pointed out, she was released. However, the trial's not over. So they just delayed the trial and then they let her her go with like basically she made bond if I can quote that although it's not the same it she's in Canada but essentially they said come back to your court date at a later date and then they just let her go on a plane knowing she will never come back knowing that um and immediately the two michaels were released this is obvious what just happened here it's obvious that china sees this as exchanging prisoners and Canada literally just followed the U.S. guidelines. The U.S. were the ones that said, we're going to release you for a later court date, knowing full well what was going to happen. Um, and I think China just showed the world what the, the situation is, that they are prepared to play hardball with any country. Look, they were playing hardball with Canada. We're not the biggest name on the world stage. However, we were the go-between between them and the United States. So it's not like they were just playing it with just us. They were they were showing us, the United States, all of Europe, anywhere, that they are ready to do what it takes to to push forward in the way that they see the future. And yeah, so, I mean, yeah, yeah. I I don't know I don't know how we come back from this diplomatically with them. Uh, well, <laughs> if we're talking about uh diplomacy with china it's very rocky it's very rocky for any western nation including um the the united states so it's going to be an interesting development um yeah i mean we we arrested Ming and placed her under a house arrest in canada because of an extradition treaty it was top down it was an order from the united states because we have that treaty with the united states we followed that we arrested her, and then, of course, Canada had to deal with the brunt force of China uh, arresting two of our citizens in their own country. That's right. And honestly, the, the big question then becomes, is anyone going to actually follow through on these international treaties, seeing how China reacted? Uh, I think the, 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 the world needs to figure out a plan on... on how they are going to handle these situations because if you are another country and this happened to you are you now actually going to put yourself in the similar position that we were in where we were getting nothing out of this we had sanctions from china which is our second largest uh exporter uh basically handicapping our farmers and they were threatening to kill two canadians what other like what country is going to turn around and say yeah i'm i'm ready to go through that to fulfill these these treaties that ultimately amounted to nothing because nobody got anything out of this and we we uh, we ended up looking like a pawn in some giant game of chess between the united states and china uh so i i see this as actually a fracturing of those treaties because there's no way we go through this again yeah and What's the most terrifying is China is on r route to becoming the largest superpower in the next, what, what two to three decades? So we're going to have yeah, this large superpower, you know, acting almost like a terrorist, if not almost like um 1930s Al Capone type gangster. I mean, we're going to have difficult relations with China. It's going to be a rocky road, Um, but that's... 
all Western uh, democracies as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, there does need to be a relationship there. Like I said, they are our, our, our second largest export is to China. And as you say, they're becoming a superpower, potentially the biggest one. We do need to get back to being able to be civil with them. But I, I just don't know how, because they're willing to use these tactics, it's going to be really tough to see how the global uh, push of, of Europe and North America, uh, how they handle the, the growing uh, China-Russia potentially alliance there. And because we know that those countries are willing to do things a bit differently. Yes. It, it's going to be a very strange world when we wake up one day and the United States is no longer the biggest, uh, the biggest kid on campus. Mm-hmm. And I'm not like fear mongering. I'm not doing this whole red scare tactics. I don't believe in that. It's just, this is the fact. I mean, China doesn't play fair. They steal so much intellectual property. They're not playing fair on the global stage, but they will be a global superpower. So how we're going to put pressure on China to actually be a good faith actor, I don't know. But it's definitely something that we're going to have to continue uh, working on. Unfortunately, because Canada is such a small country, we kind of tend to get picked on the most. So um, Yeah, and I, do, I, I think it's important that what you mentioned there, um, that this is not supposed to be fear-mongering um, talking about uh, you know, the China problem. Uh, because as uh, this article we have up here points out, uh, let me just throw it up on the screen um, with the quote that uh, we we are still going to be welcoming uh, Chinese immigrants. Uh, we are still going to be welcoming of Chinese people in, in general. It's just how they handle uh, diplomacy with us. That is the, the issue. And that is a global issue that needs to be addressed on a global stage. This in no way should be uh, down on the people of China or or people with Chinese heritage living in in our country or any other country. It's not their fault. It's not their problem. This is just a global uh, issue that that needs to be addressed by by countries around the world and not on an individual basis um, uh, um, in any country. Yeah, I mean, speaking of China, I think we can segue to drugs. I think it's rather fitting. Um, so, Let's when it comes it. to war on drugs, I would say every single Canadian has skin in this game. We know someone who has or is battling addiction or has died from an overdose, uh, battling alcoholism. It's rampant. I mean, we can see in the numbers Alcohol sales have increased during the pandemic. Cannabis consumption, although safer than alcohol, has gone up um, rapidly in the past uh, year or so. So I just want to mention that there's two separate wars that are going on with the war on drugs. There's the one aspect where you're punishing addicts. Um, you know, for instance, law enforcement arresting users, drug users, uh, drug dealers. But there's also the war for drugs, like turf wars or uh, the war for uh, control of the drug trade, so to speak. So 
I was a security guard for about close to two years. And although I wasn't dealing with um, the consequences of the war on drugs every single day, I definitely saw addiction um, pretty much every single day. I would dispose of dirty needles. I would um, escort drunts to their units because they couldn't walk. Um, I would see drug trafficking from unit to unit. And of course, I'm just a security guard. I'm just an a agent of the property owner. So I'm pretty much just a civilian. I can't really arrest people. But even I have felt um, the impact of the war on drugs. So a few episodes ago, we talked about failed American foreign policy. So the war on terror, the invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan and how Canada and other nations were wrapped up in a shitty illegal conflict that Congress did not approve of. We approved and were dread kicking and screaming into the night by the military industrial complex for their pleasure. And what I really mean is we consented and what we gave birth to should have been casted aside and shunned for its monstrosity. It didn't stop there. Our fling with the United States continued because the heart wants what it wants. When government officials twiddled their thumbs, not knowing what to ban next after alcohol prohibition ended, they turned their eyes towards narcotics. Of course, the chief architect of the war on drugs, Harry Anslinger, a hardcore racist even for 1930s standards, wasn't going to use these new laws to help the colored. These laws were designed to oppress and make convict, convicts of political opponents. The war on drugs was in full effect before the Nitsin campaign ever coined the saying, but the more than others, but he more than others was an opportunist to use this to stifle political deceit. And I would like to share with you a quote from a top Nitsin aide. The Nitsin campaign in 1968 and the Nitsin White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and the black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the black with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. This shows what we already knew about the war on drugs, that it was never about the public's safety, and the question is how many more Canadians need to die due to failed drug policy. There's record overdose deaths throughout our country, even Yukon, who have recently opened their first safe injection site. Patrons under the supervision of healthcare professionals can safely administer their drug of choice after it being tested for harmful additives such as fentanyl. Bad faith actors opposed to safe injection sites will claim that this will never put an end to the opioid epidemic and the drug war. They may, they may even try to make the argument that it enables drug use. Those foreign safe injection sites will counter that with, we were never claiming that this would bring an end to the epidemic, but let's be realistic. The war on drugs hasn't prevented addiction. It has enabled it. 
we could sit idly by while uh, uh, while brothers and sisters and non-gender conforming die, but we have too much of a conscience. People will use drugs. Shouldn't they be able to use drugs safely and not fear overdose of or intravenous infections slash disease? Drugs may be a scourge, but not drug users. Canada must decriminalize drug use, release all nonviolent offenders, and better those resources towards treatment and harm reduction. That is exactly what Toronto is working towards by attempting to get the green light by the federal government to decriminalize the possession of illicit drugs for personal use in the city. This is also what Jade Meat and the NDP campaigned on to federally decriminalize drug for drugs for personal use and treat addiction as a health issue. Let's follow Portugal's lead and understand there's not a one-size-fit-all approach to recovery. The more, the better. The war on drugs coincides with the most important issues in Canada. Issues that were brought up during the last election. The rise of homelessness. Gun violence. Criminal enterprise. Let's cut the head off the snake and walk away the victors for once. Let's end the war on drugs now. End the criminalization of addiction. And let's have some good faith conversations about the legalization of drugs. Stay safe, stay frosty, Maple out. Well said, Maple. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, I can't believe that this is not talked about more, considering that we're in 2021 going into 2022. And uh, I think it's, it's about time. And like you said, Portugal's done it. Uh, Oregon has done it in the States. So uh, honestly, it makes no sense to be locking up uh, nonviolent offenders, especially when we have classified addiction as a as a mental disorder uh something that needs uh, a mental caregiver to to help with and not prison so uh, the fact that we still lock people up for just having or possessing some of these drugs makes no sense i I don't understand how anyone thinks that that is going to solve the problem yeah i mean it's a losing battle for law enforcement um, it's a losing battle for us, the taxpayers. Everyone loses. Um, you can't stop people from using drugs. And we know from the prohibition of alcohol that it brings criminal enterprise to the forefront. It gives them power and control. So if we end prohibition, legalize drugs, we can take control and really kill these black markets and criminal organizations. And I feel as though if we tackle the war on drugs, we can also tackle homelessness and also violent crime as well. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I will say it, it, all of the issues across the board, they're always nuanced. But in terms of drug use, especially nonviolent drug use, uh, it, that's where it's pretty clear that um, having an outright ban is literally the worst way and, and actually the, the most ineffective way uh, to, to limit the number of people who are overdosing, as well as, like you said, the criminal enterprise that, that swoops in. I just wanted to point out here uh, something that you brought to my attention, um, that the Yukon 
is opening their first safe drug consumption site here in the province of Ontario. We have a needle exchange program, so something similar, um, so that we know that these people, like you said, are going to be um, using drugs, and we don't want them to die or get infected. It's a it's it harms the healthcare community as well when they have to deal with these um, these situations. So it's not just the person. Um, you know, I'm sure some people are saying, "Who cares about the one person?" But no, it's a, it's if you if you're going to go that route, it's still a, a strain on the community as a whole. And so these are much more effective ways to help people not get into that situation. Yeah. And so I think this is a, a great uh, first step. But ultimately, like you said, the decriminalization of of it across the board is the only way to go when it comes to dealing with overdoses of of these um, harsher drugs. Yes. And then legalization across the board is the only only way to attack the criminal enterprises, uh, the black market itself. Yeah. That that's a that's a I guess uh, a harder sell. Um I don't I don't know anywhere that's done the full legalization and then like actual uh, licensed retailers of some of these drugs. Uh, I can't think of of uh, any place in the world, but I do agree that that seems to be where we are headed. Um, it will be interesting to see, though, because some of these drugs, just how toxic they are to your body, it, it, it almost has like a, a weird uh, optics where the government is taxing something that is so bad and so harmful to you. Um, but, uh, you know, we do it with some very harmful, uh, so, uh, you know, smoking and, and um, people drinking and then drunk driving. So, you know, the government still makes taxes off of that stuff. So, there, you know, there is some play there, I think, for the government to maybe come in and, and try to, to legalize it. But I think the, the first step, decriminalize, I would be happy with, uh, and, and we can kind of go from there. Me too, my friend. One last point. Now, I do want to mention that just being a recreational drug user, and keep in mind, only 15% or so that use illicit drugs actually become addicted to it. The 85% are just the recreational users. The thing is, these party drugs, we're finding that they're being cut with fentanyl. So I do think that the country needs to move forward with drug testing centers People will say that's enabling um, people to use drugs. I would say it's more of a common sense approach to making sure that people, if they're snorting cocaine or they're doing molly, they're doing MDMA, that it doesn't have fentanyl or any other additives that's going to kill them. Yeah, you make a good point. I know um, this is slightly off topic, but but just bear with me for a second. But uh, I remember reading a story maybe a year or so ago where uh, some some chemistry students at a university somewhere in the states had developed um, nail polish that you could like stir in your drink to detect any roofies, um, and so something simple like that, where if we're able to help people using these drugs identify if they're safe, I, I think you're right. That ultimately th- they're going to use them anyway. Let's at least make it safe for them and try to help them instead of letting them go off and have to do this in secret and then then get hurt and potentially have to go to the hospital or or die and so i think any way we can make it safer even even if you do not 
agree that drugs should be used. I think we can all agree that we want these people to be as safe as possible. Great. Well, speaking of fantastic sideways, I hear that you have a monologue on vaccine patents. What do you have for me, Flapjack? Yeah, so this is something that has been mentioned in passing on the news, but not nearly to the amount it needs to be. We are on the one-year anniversary since India and Africa asked the global community to lift patent protection on the vaccine, otherwise known as the TRIPS waiver. Now, the, the thing to keep in mind here is that they asked this when their pandemic was raging out of control and they were unable to afford the COVID vaccines. The rich, the rich countries paid a lot for these vaccines. Now, the vaccine uh, companies did say at first that they were distributing them at cost. However, that agreement has ended as of July 31st. And it's unclear if that was even in effect for all the vaccines, especially for some of the immediate shipments that here in Canada we needed right away. Now, it seems to be that there are only a handful of countries and a handful of global, uh, I guess, global uh, citizens, if you will, that are standing in the way. One of them being the notorious Bill Gates, who is always on the side of patent protection. Now, his argument has been that there are not any vaccine uh, labs set up to handle this type of vaccine. And so the patent protection is not the problem. It's the fact that the that the world just doesn't have enough equipment. But that is simply not true. We, we know for a fact that there are a lot of labs across the, the world that are ready to go. In fact, one just started up and got special approval to start creating vaccines in South Africa. So we know that they can do this really quickly. However, Canada, the EU, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand... And France, for a good chunk of it, as well as the United States, were all blocking this initiative. Well, a bunch of those countries have reversed course. The U.S. is now on board. That's right. The U.S. is now on board to, to undo this, this vote and, and go back and say, we're going we're gonna, to uh, agree to the TRIPS waiver. France has come around. New Zealand and Australia have both come around, as well as a, a bunch of smaller countries uh, throughout South America and into Asia. What we're looking at now is literally just Canada, Britain, and the EU. That, that's it. And really, the EU, it comes down to Germany and Switzerland and, and Norway. And then obviously Britain is on its own because of Brexit. Those are the countries standing in the way because it has to be a unanimous decision in the UN to lift the TRIPS waiver. And to me, this is just, this is crazy. If, if not for this pandemic, a once in a hundred year disease that has plagued this, this world, if you're not going to lift the patents on this, we will never lift patents. We, we now know where people actually stand. And what really gets me is, do you remember back at the beginning of this pandemic when it was going to be two weeks and we're done, a month and we're done? You know, everyone stay home for a month, stay home for two weeks, we'll ride it out, and then we're, we're good to go. And 
it seemed like everything was going on track and all of a sudden boom we hit we get hit with a huge wave and then boom another wave and then a delta variant well where do you think these are coming from they're coming from the unvaccinated countries because they cannot get vaccines right now in canada we are at 70 percent of at least one dose and that has gone up we're getting close to 70 percent two doses for our population, which is very close to the quote-unquote herd immunity that was so prevalent early on in this pandemic. There are some countries that are less than 4% vaccinated because they simply do not have the money to buy vaccines. This is literally the rich countries versus the poor countries, and the rich countries were blocking access to the poor countries because the leaders of those countries are very close with the the owners and the people in charge at these these vaccine uh, creators companies. That's that's it. That's the the bare bones of it. They get money from these companies, and here's what's going to happen: the U.S. and Canada are pledging to send vaccines to these poorer countries. So here is their solution: instead of lifting the trips waiver and letting anyone who has a lab who who can actually build this type of vaccine because it is a, um, a much more difficult vaccine to manufacture than uh, previous flu vaccines. If there is a lab that can run it and, and they're able to do it, instead of letting them do it, Canada and the U.S. And, the, and Europe and Britain are going to buy vaccines for the poor countries. So our tax dollars are going to be buying vaccines for other countries because our leaders refuse to lift this patent. It's ridiculous. It makes zero sense. And the, the crazy thing is, all the countries involved have within their own laws these these methods in which they can remove copyright and remove patents in a time of crisis. And they have done so in the past. Not recently, but in the past. Now, luckily enough for Canada, we were able to buy enough vaccines. But imagine we weren't. Imagine we're like Australia and New Zealand, who now are at the back of the line because they didn't buy any vaccines because they didn't need them. They had no COVID. They had shut down properly. Well, now, because the world is is screwing the poorer countries, now Australia and New Zealand are facing a huge wave of COVID because we were unable to vaccinate the whole world, and we could have. And to me, this is the most ridiculous part of all of it, is that it's just a handful of rich countries holding up this process. When pressed, we've had people on the floor say that they feel that this entire year that they've been meeting and talking about this TRIPS waiver has been a waste of time. That the countries holding out literally won't engage or say anything. Canada, Germany, Switzerland, and, and Denmark. Or Norway, sorry, not Denmark, Norway. France has come around, US has come around, and Australia and New Zealand have come around potentially because they're now in in a dire straits themselves. But this is where we're at. They're going to meet again in a couple weeks. They're actually meeting this week in a, in a pre preliminary hearing to discuss what they're going to discuss about in a couple weeks. It's ridiculous, this process. It has been a year. 3.6 million people have died in both India and Africa because they have waited a year to roll out this support. And now they're going to buy vaccines for those countries. It's, it's a disgrace, and honestly, we need to stand up. There was only one 
there was only one mention of this on the house floor in Canada. There was one of those those e those e signature uh, uh, topics that was brought to the house floor. Five only five hundred Canadians signed it, and it was brought before the house floor. And the house basically, you know, the Trudeau's government just said we're going to work with the private sector to help these poorer countries. The fact that we didn't all stand up and and just say no, this is unacceptable, is because this is not being talked about at all. Bill Gates has shut it down, and we're basically going to keep moving forward as as scheduled. And our tax dollars, along with the United States, Europe, Britain, and a lot of the other parts of the world, are going to go to help these countries, as we should help these countries. But there's a way better way to do it. We don't need to spend our tax dollars doing it. If we lift the patents, they get vaccines. End of story. Very well said, Flapjack. Um, vaccine equity is something that we need to fight for. It seems as though Big Pharma has a stranglehold on most of our elected official officials. And of course, Big Pharma has increased our life expectancy and so much more. But yes, lifting the patents will save millions, tens of millions of lives. So I'm yep. all for that. Couldn't agree uh, with you more. Yeah, one thing I will say is that the countries have that have reversed course that I mentioned, United States and France, they are not outspoken about this in these meetings. The only countries that have reversed course recently and are really pushing are Australia and New Zealand, and it's because they are being affected. The United States and France literally sit back and don't say anything, although they have pledged to vote to um, to get the trips waiver through. But we, like I said, we still have a handful of holdouts, otherwise known in the uh, community of people following the story as the the rich problem countries, and we are a part of that. And it's honestly, it's it, this is one of the most frustrating parts is that this is what's causing the pandemic to be prolonged. And, you know, right now we've got the right versus left in the United States. Here we've got vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And ultimately, we could have handled this much better if this TRIPS waiver was dealt with a year ago when it was first brought before the UN. And uh, this is why we're going to continue to see the pandemic become endemic, which is every year, like the flu, we're going to see a rise in COVID cases because we were unable to handle this as a as a global community and it shows we were unprepared as bill gates pointed out however he has done nothing to help no he has not and my microsoft computer keeps crashing as well <laughs> okay all right well um hot I just topics wanted to quickly... yeah go ahead i just wanted to quickly say that uh, on that on that topic um we're also talking about uh potential boosters in the quote-unquote rich countries and uh it's it's crazy to think but you know there are countries that don't have any vaccines and we're talking about boosters that we we don't have any scientific data yet that that shows us how uh helpful these boosters are how much protection we actually get from them and i know when i say that people are going to bust out the tinfoil hats and, mm-hmm. and and whatnot but th- this is not a fake pandemic do get vaccinated in fact i i support a lot of these harsher vaccine mandates you need to be vaccinated it's it's it, the science is done and if you're still researching 
you're, you're too slow. You need to be on, on board here. However, the companies that are making these boosters are no longer selling them, them selling them to us at cost. And they're just pushing these boosters out. And we're going to have, if we have to get these every year, because they were unable to help vaccinate the poorer countries of this, of this planet. Uh, it's, it's a nightmare. It truly is a global nightmare. And I don't know what everyone is scared about some global cabal because our global community cannot work together at all. There is no, there is no help uh, had between any countries. And we, we saw that with this pandemic. Yeah, very well said. I mean, it's such a first world problem to deny getting vaccinated, but you have access to a free vaccine that you can get. It's tangible. It's it's within grasp. And here we are talking about these poor countries who are just dying and also dying to get their hands on a vaccine. So it definitely shows just how fortunate uh, we should be all here. That, that's right. That's right. I th- we are very fortunate. And I think maybe we don't do enough of that um, in our in our life to, to remember that we are in actually a pretty good country. However, we need to be better. We need to be a leader. And I think that's maybe we, we can turn to uh, a couple topics out of the United States where Canada has a chance to be a global leader. Yeah, uh, of course. So- yeah, the, I guess the first big one, I mean, do you have a preference? I think the first big one is the uh, Pandora Papers that just came out. You betcha. Okay, so um, I, I know everyone remembers the Panama Papers, but this is the next huge leak, the Pandora Papers, and this one is even bigger. Uh, so the, Pan, the Panama Papers were actually just one particular offshore bank that that the uh, that these reporters were able to gain access to. This time around, it is a whole slew of them. And once again, we see people using offshore tax havens to hide their finances. Now, under Harper, when the uh, Panama Papers were first released, they actually had an initiative where if you were on those papers, instead of prosecuting you, you would just have to pay what you actually owe, because now that they can see your true finances... And they would not; uh, it would not go on your your criminal record. Uh, this time around, it's unclear how we're going to handle this. I know the NDP uh, were very, um, very aggressively promoting that they wanted to to go after these tax loopholes very harshly. Uh, so we will see. I, honestly, Maple, I don't know. I don't know what the Liberals' plan is for this. Um, what What are your thoughts? I think uh, for the Liberals, this is just business as usual. As you said, the NDP is really the only federal, the only party in Canada that really wants to go after the top 1% of the 1%, the very wealthy, those who are hiding their wealth uh, in tax havens. A lot of their campaign was about taxing these individuals, using those funds to invest in um, working and middle-class Canadians and families. So these papers only, they only reinforce what we already knew, which is that the very rich and those who call themselves public servants are not paying their fair share. They're hiding their wealth, and it's just uh, abysmal. I, I can't stand it. Yeah, now we... 
back when we first heard about the uh, the Panama Papers, a bunch of global leaders said that they were going to crack down on this, and we have just seen this get worse since then. And what's what's crazy to me is that there seems to be less U.S. people in this list because the U.S. is now its own tax haven. Yes, it is. After the yeah, after the Trump era tax cuts. The U.S. is now a tax haven, so it's kind of crazy. You don't even have to go offshore, uh, quote-unquote, to be in a tax haven. You could just send your money to the United States. Yeah, I just want to go over a brief paragraph here. So millions of leaked documents and the biggest journalism partnership in history have uncovered financial secrets of 35 current and former world leaders uh, more than 330 politicians and public officials in 91 countries and territories, and a global lineup of fugitives, con artists, and murderers. So definitely a great bunch in there. Yeah. It's incredible when I'm reading through some of these uh, Canadian names. A lot of them are in jail. And it's like, wow, they're in jail and we still didn't, uh, the government still didn't know that they had finances offshore somewhere. Um, we really need to do a better job at handling how the wealth uh, in this country is moved around. Yeah, of course. Let's move on to Facebook. So I work in tech, and unfortunately, I was getting a lot of calls because Facebook was down. People would would go on their device and call in and be like, my Facebook is down, my WhatsApp is down. So Facebook um, had a massive uh, server outage, at least that's what we believe it is. Uh, recently, a Facebook whistleblower, uh, Francis Hygen, um, basically uh, came forth saying that Facebook profits off of fear and polarization. What do we have to say about this, Flapjack? Yeah, I don't think anyone is surprised at that fact. Uh, I know Facebook is denying it, but let's be real. We we all now know how these algorithms work. You see what is getting the most engagement, and what gets the most engagement is something that is either really, really um, upsetting you or something that you are really, really in favor of. Uh, and those happen to be, unfortunately, in, in our current society, those are the hot button culture war topics. And so that seems to be what gets clicks. But what's even more concerning than that, despite that being very concerning, is that there also is this um, revelation that the Facebook ad algorithm is not working as it's supposed to. Uh, right now, there's been two hearings um, in the U.S. Uh, by the U.S. House uh, of Representatives because Facebook ads that are targeted towards teenagers, and more specifically teenage girls, but um, the broader teenage group on Facebook, they are getting ads that should never see the light of day. Facebook's algorithm should immediately flag those as inappropriate, and those are getting through as well. And Facebook, at this point, is just doing a lot of harm. However, it is raking in millions and is worth one trillion dollars so the fact that this is happening on what is essentially the you know the the global street corner if you will where, where people can all express their views uh this is this is gonna hit ahead soon where we are gonna have to decide how we handle a company 
like Facebook and what it means to have Facebook as part of our society. Yeah, of course. And I mean, there are talks of government stepping in and regulating Facebook. I mean, I'm all for meaningful regulation. So we'll see if the American government can actually put forth any uh, changes that can be made. Yeah, honestly, there is a lot of talk from that on the right. However, the right is the ones that are always against that kind of regulation. Well, I mean... some of them also want to they want to break up um the big social media companies tech giants and honestly (laughs) we're kind of verging on socialism there because you're having the government own the means of production but uh go on flapjack well exactly so i you know it's funny we might actually get to a point where we have agreement on both sides of the political aisle at least from the population not maybe not from the people in power but yeah it sounds like the people on the right are now uh understanding the the error of letting any company run a monopoly and get this big where they can control so much of our lives i mean facebook going down uh upset the the global e-commerce uh situation uh, by quite a bit in fact just that going down for eight hours uh, knocked eight billion off of uh, Zuckerberg's uh, wealth chart, and now he's dropped down below Bill Gates. So you know, bad day for him, I guess. But yeah, uh, but that actually brings up a better question about the fact that Facebook and Instagram are um, a source of income for a lot of people, and it is a a essentially a, a, a global e-commerce site at this point. And how much of that are we willing to completely rest in the hands of a private company? Now, someone um, on a local radio show I heard pointed out that Amazon actually controls a lot of the credit card uh, uh, systems. So imagine if this were to happen with Amazon and all of a sudden credit cards go down for eight hours. You know, at some point, people need to really think that this these are public utilities that 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 are essentially being being owned by a handful of people. Yeah, I mean that is a very good point. Uh I mean if 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 any of us have watched the sh- social dilemma, we know that Facebook it sows dissent and hatred. I mean, I think I was on Facebook not that long ago and it was bringing up posts uh, that were um pro-life and I'm pro-choice, it, it wants you to engage in stuff that pisses you off. That's what the algorithm wants. It wants to piss you off so that you engage. So, That's I mean, right. some of this isn't um, some of this isn't a surprise. Um, some of the conspiracy theorists believe the reason why um, Facebook went down was because of that uh, recent hearing. Um, yeah, the timing of that was was pretty strange um (laughs) yeah i i can see i can see how a conspiracy theory would develop there yeah totally um okay so i think uh next we'll jump over to something that i have not seen talked about at all maybe briefly um on like five minutes of airtime on on cbc but uh it is the the giant oil spill off the coast of california um now 
any you know any time in the past this would have been 24 7 news cycle where we would have people on the ground giving us live updates every hour on the hour about what's going on here um si- similar uh to the uh the pandora papers but here we are in a in a weird state of reality where this gets little play because there is no political spin it's just a it's just an oil spill obviously you're going to have the uh, environmental people and i'm one of them saying like this is another reason why we need to move away from fossil fuels uh but other than that this isn't going to do much for these these cable news outlets that uh want to kind of focus on some of the fluff political pieces yeah, because it doesn't have the right versus left uh, kind of flair that we're used to seeing. Um, so just to give some context here, in Long Beach, California, evidence emerged Tuesday that a ship, uh, ship's anchor snagged and drayed an underwater pipeline that ruptured and spilled tens of thousands of gallons of crude oil off Southern California an accident the Coast Guard acknowledged uh, did not investigate properly for nearly 10 hours after the first call came in. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, should we just transition to renewable energy at this point? I mean, th- like th- this is not, this should not be what pushes people over the edge. If it does, great, but it shouldn't be because there's a lot more and better reasons like this does seem to have been just a just a, a mistake. Uh, it, it seems like at this point they're saying that it was a ship anchor yep. that dragged the pipeline and broke it open. There is some weird uh, continuity issues going on here. Not not conspiratorial. Mm-hmm. Just the Coast Guard is trying. The Coast Guard screwed up because they didn't think this was as big a deal as it was, and so they delayed. Um, putting out any sort of info um, until the following day, which amounted to hours and hours of oil just spilling out there, even though people in the area were notifying the police and and knew that something was wrong. um, The the Coast Guard was saying, no, no, everything is fine. And then um, some ships are saying that they were told by the Coast Guard uh, earlier in the day than... Uh, than when the Coast Guard eventually did uh, come forward to the public. And so the Coast Guard is kind of backtracking. I I don't think there's any big deal here. The Coast Guard is just, they look bad because they didn't recognize the problem and and they're trying to, you know, retroactively make it seem like they were on the up and up. Well, I don't know if they're trained to even recognize that there was a problem. But um, yeah, I'll give them the benefit. But that's the thing is that they they were supposed to go out there and check and they did, and they said that, that there is no issue, there was a minor spill, hmm. and that it would never reach the shore. Well, now we know that that spill was, was just a huge tear in the pipeline from an anchor that was, that was sending tons and tons of gallons into the water, and now that's washing ashore. So they, they just look like they are incompetent. They're not incompetent, they just made a huge mistake here. Someone, just huge oversight on their part. Um, I don't think there's anything evil or dubious here i think it was just a, a big mess up from everybody involved yes 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 um hmm. 
And lastly, uh, just real quick before we wrap up, I want to talk about Stephen Donzinger. Mm. Um, his, I mean, his story is completely insane. It is. So for those for those that don't know, this guy took on Chevron, a giant uh, oil company, uh, for the indigenous peoples of Ecuador and won $9.5 billion settlement, which to this day, not a cent has been paid because... A U.S. court, because Chevron no longer operates in Ecuador, he then had to come to a U.S. court where the U.S. court found that the way Stephen Donzinger handled the case in Ecuador was fraudulent, so they disbarred him, and then he was personally persecuted by a Chevron, uh, uh, basically a, a legal group that that handles Chevron's cases, he was personally prosecuted by them. And uh, that was on a contempt case uh, because he would not uh, hand over his files, his personal files and his phone to them uh, in the, in the, in the case that they won where they, he was convicted or it was found that he had done something fraudulent. Uh, It's a very messy situation, but essentially Chevron's, has backed these lawyers and these lawyers became judges and these judges are now finding in favor of Chevron every time. And in fact, it's gotten to a point where he has now been found guilty of, of the minorest of, of, of charges, a contempt case, which is the lowest type of misdemeanor you can get in the United States federal penal code. And the maximum sentence is six months. But nobody has ever spent more than 10 days in uh, house arrest. He has spent two years in house arrest waiting for uh, the, <laughs> the judgment on how long he'll spend in jail. And it just came back that he's now going to spend two, uh, six months in jail. But he spent two years in house arrest. And again, this judge was backed by Chevron, um, and so it, it's insane to me. It, it is crazy. There, Amnesty International has petitioned the U.S. that this that this is unlawful and this is an arbitrary detention, and they call for immediate release. And they think that the U.S. owes him money, which I agree. Uh, and Canada needs to stand up here as well. Everyone needs to come down on on this because whether or not something happened in ecuador uh, we're not even making that judgment anymore really it is should don zinger spend six months in a federal jail uh when the law he supposedly broke nobody has ever spent more than 10 days house arrest and it's insane literally i cannot believe that this has gone on this far and the fact that biden and the u.s government can actually just step in and fix this easily and they haven't uh i i'm i'm shocked that like this looks so bad yeah i mean it's a huge miscarriage of justice i mean talk about adding insult to injury i mean you have this guy uh, in house arrest for two years he's already lost his um the ability to practice law so that was stripped from him and then you sentence him to jail for six months, not time served. I mean, 
Oh my goodness! I mean, yeah, the fact that he served two years, time like his time served is essentially two years, which already is insane, and that's why Amnesty International and a lot of other groups are calling for him to be compensated for that. Uh, and as he expressed to the judge, I mean, he is unable to be—he was unable to be a father to his children because he could not leave the house, and all because he is all because he would not give up his computer and other electronic devices, which resulted in a contempt charge, uh, which normally no one gets, no one, normally no one gets anything. Normally it's it's literally like a, like a, like a don't do that again, or like a one day house arrest, but 10 days was the maximum. And the fact that he's been in house arrest for two years, like the fact that he didn't get a judgment for two years is ridiculous in and of itself and shows you the broken, legal system but um this he is appealing this immediately and uh it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because the two judges i mean once once he appeals this and gets if he ever does get this overturned and he comes back at them if if they start appealing some of these other judgments i mean what happens to these judges where it is it is clear that they are on chevron's side from the get-go in fact when he was initially found uh, guilty, or, or when, he was, when he was initially found that he had done some fraudulent stuff in Ecuador, which again is still not proven. Um, when he was, when that was found, the criminal justice system in the United States refused to prosecute him. So the judge appointed a private law firm, which is the private law firm of Chevron, to prosecute him. There has been no. There has been no witnesses. There has been no nothing. Um, it's just just the two of them in a, in the courtroom. Uh, there's no jurors. This is not. It's a sham trial that uh, is being handed out uh, behind closed doors, and uh, the government is just letting it happen. It's crazy to me. Yeah, he definitely pissed off the wrong people there. Um... Okay, I think we should end this podcast on a um, on a light note. Uh, we sure. have the upcoming Thanksgiving uh, Day holiday in Canada, so I was thinking that we could maybe take a moment or two and talk about what we should be uh, thankful uh, for living in Canada. Sure. All right. Well, uh, I think the the first thing uh, that I, comes to mind is the fact that we are in one of the most vaccinated countries in the world and that is uh you know truly (laughs) one of the best things that you can have in this world right now is being in a country as safe as ours uh when it comes to covid and uh as we talked about it's unfortunate that we can't help other countries right now but the fact that our population is mostly vaccinated is is uh something to be thankful for Definitely. Well, I am thankful uh, for universal health care. Yes, it's not perfect. No one was saying that it was perfect. But considering that 500,000 Americans go bankrupt due to not being able to afford medical expenses, I feel um, very fortunate to be in Canada with uh, universal health care. No matter what people may say about it, it's better than nothing. Oh, that's a, that is a good one. Uh, I think um, there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstandings uh, 
especially to our neighbors uh, in the south. And so I think it, it's good to, to point out that this is actually a, a very, very welcomed and helpful thing in our lives. Yeah, of course. And I mean, with the pandemic, there's um, our healthcare system has definitely been strained, but I am very thankful uh, for universal health care. Um, what else are you thankful for? Well, I will say that uh, while we're not the, the best right now, Canada does seem to recognize the environmental issues. And, and I'm thankful that we have all parties on the federal level are on the same page that they've acknowledged. Okay, not all parties. There's still the PPC. But almost all parties and all parties that have seats have acknowledged the environmental issues that we face and we're working towards it. Uh, so I, I think that is uh, good to know that while we have our disagreements, that it does seem that the majority of elected people and people voting have all acknowledged and understand the importance of this issue. Definitely. Definitely. I'm uh, something I'm thankful uh, for as well. Well, I think that's a good way to end things today. Uh, thanks for watching the Northern Lights show. My name is Mabel. And I'm Flapjack. Take care, guys.